welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. All right, it's round three of our four box set here with our podcast. So uh, today we're going to have a little bit different approach and kind of more of a homesteading level. Um, but I like what Jordy's got going on here. With um, oh, there's the timer on my <laughs> there's a timer on my ham that I'm smoking. Hey, looky there. So Jordy has something going on a little unique with Asian heritage hogs or pot-bellied pigs. And I'll let him obviously tell that story, but it's it's pretty interesting to see what he's got going on there. Also, there's a little bit of delay because of technology back and forth. So if you just notice some dead airspace between our um, our uh, questions and answers, it's just because of technology, not because there's a tension building between us. <laughs> All right, let's get into the conversation. Today we're going up to Michigan, and we're going to talk with Jordy Buck from Northern Homesteading. Welcome, Jordy. Well, thank you. All right. So I have to ask you, it seems like you probably get this question all the time when you tell people from Michigan, are you a youper or are you not? <laughs> no, I'm not. I live in uh, west central Michigan between Grand Rapids and Big Rapids. So I don't get up to the UP very often. Okay. So you're in the mitt. What, so if they call Upper Peninsula youpers, what do they call lower, lower state? Well... The Youpers call us trolls because we live below the bridge. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so that's a thing, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. I like that. I've not heard that one yet. All right. So tell, <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about your setup. Get, let's let's start with a forty thousand foot elevation view. What do you got going on up there? Well, up in Michigan, I have one acre just about exactly so a pretty small property uh, my wife and our five kids are on the property we uh, raise quite a few pigs there i grow produce for the local farmers market and for our own family quite a bit and um, we got the chickens and the rabbits kind of the whole homesteading thing and i focus a lot more on the um the more self-sustaining sustainable and regenerative type of uh, homesteading techniques. And, well, a couple of years ago, I started getting a little bit more into these pigs. So, golly, um, I've got uh, 16 pigs right now in our in our pig pen, not including the boar, back in our paddock areas. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, getting a bit filled out up here now. <laughs> Okay, so make sure I understand. So you're you're, you're talking one acre. You have 16, yep. 16 pigs, uh, boar, and you also do uh, market gardening as well, plus your other homesteading, all on one acre. So yeah, that yeah, there's a lot of questions yeah, I want to ask. I, you I do. It sounds a little tight in some places. <laughs> I actually have a little bit of wiggle room, believe it or not. Okay. Not much, but I have a little. All right. Well, let's let's talk about this one acre first, because I know, you know, when I think of one acre, I think of a West Virginia one acre, which is um, yeah, there's a portion of it that you can't even access because it's so steep. But what um, describe your one acre as far as topography and, and uh, ground cover and all that type of stuff? Well, my one acre uh, is it's a slight incline, kind of moderately flat ground, but I mean it's it's inclined, but it's it's smooth inclined um, kind of starting from the road. It just kind of goes a little higher up from there as you go back. The property is uh, about 360 feet deep uh, and uh, about 130 ish feet wide. So it's kind of a long skinny place. Hmm. And it was about 90% forested, uh, fairly mature forest. But the past four years we've cleared most of that out. I just finished clearing most of the back half acre out this spring and that was a chore and a half clearing all them trees out. a lot of big old cottonwoods and black oak back there but we got most of that cleared out and i'm trying 
turning the back there into a uh, combination of kind of annual and perennial paddocks for uh, we're planting annual and perennial crops back there for the pigs to be rotating through. In the front, the front half acre, that's uh, a majority of that has been the market garden. I'm probably downsizing a bit of that because I am putting in a greenhouse. Hmm. I have one small little 21 foot by seven foot wide cattle panel greenhouse that I've been using. And I am putting up a structure right now that's um, about a, uh, it's, it's about a 20 by 40, I guess is what it is. And I'm converting that. It's an old uh, pool cover is what it is. And I'm converting that thing like a canopy into a greenhouse to get started with a little bit of nursery work. Well, man, you, you've got a lot going on there for sure. What's the, what's the, well, it's kind of like, I just don't have enough to do, even though I'm already <laughs> working 60 hours a week and doing a little side work as a writer on top of that. So well, apparently I needed more. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is, is this a full-time gig? But it sounds like you, you do have a full-time or, or a day job at least. And this maybe is, even a this side is definitely job. part-time. Yeah. Um, I'm managing it as well as I can to be very kind of very um, simple to coordinate and put together pretty tightly so that I can keep it part time. And I try so hard not to waste time with all of the extras that I'm doing. Hmm. And that's made it manageable enough for me with the time that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I'm going to assume uh, I have no idea your age, but I'm going to assume your kids are probably <clears throat> not at the age where they are super productive farm help yet <laughs> my oldest just turned six okay so he's so they're probably more in the liability versus asset when it comes to actual farm work then if that's fair to say oh yeah i've got to watch <laughs> behind my shoulder every step of the way uh, one of my girls golly in particular my second youngest no matter what I'm doing, she's got to be helping me. And so I got to keep an eye out for her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You always got to be with daddy and do what daddy does. Yeah. Yeah. Farming that, that, oh, can, yeah. that can be a little bit challenge. Yeah. Dragging my, uh, grabbed my double bit ax and was dragging it across the yard <laughs> for me to use yesterday. And that thing's bigger than she is. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So, um, I want to ask you one more question about the land. So what's the soil like around there? Is that, is that Sandy Michigan soil? So it's well draining. Well, it's, it's actually, a, it's fairly well draining, but it's not quite the pure sands that I grew up on. Um, hmm. uh, where I grew up, it was actually halfway between like Savannah land and, uh, sand dunes hmm. a little further South. But my property is, it's just got a little bit of clay, but it's a nice mix of sand, silt, and clay. Hmm. It's predominantly sand, but there's enough silt and clay in there that it's, it's functional enough. Yeah, yeah, good deal. Well, obviously the question I think everybody's thinking right now with, with 17 pigs on, on that size tract, what, what, what breed of pig are we talking about here? I know that's what people are thinking. <laughs> well, I raise pot-bellied pigs. Sometimes I call them Asian heritage hogs. That's kind of a older term that floats around. And I kind of like using that term because pot bellies aren't really a unique breed. They're more of a, a grouping of many different breeds kind of brought together and thrown under one subheading there. Hmm. So, I mean, like uh, there are 16 unique Asian breeds of pigs that you could call very similar to a pot belly. Those, those dwarf Asian pigs that uh, in history, they're often just referred to as China pigs. Hmm. And it just, they're, they're all smaller, they're all black, but there's a wide variation between all these different smaller Asian pigs. And what we know as the American potbelly, or sometimes called the American Vietnamese potbelly, is really kind of a mesh together of four different land race breeds that came out of Vietnam uh, between the 60s and the 80s after the war over there. And um, so what we have today, for the most part, if you're talking a pure, pure line pot belly, it's some integration of four different, uh, four different fairly unique breeds of those Vietnamese hogs. And there's a lot of variation between them, but they're all 
solid black or mostly black, and they're all they're all small. Um, they're all lard pigs, and they all have a real thick, stout head, thick neck, and they're they're real muscular on the neck and shoulder, and they have a short snout. So that and they, if they're purebred, they never have a curly tail. That's the only really thing that all these different breeds usually have in common. And so, so the pot belly, it's there's, there's a ton of variation. They're all small, but there's still so much variation in their genotypes and in in the the types of raising environments they thrive in and the types of feeds that they do best on. And there's there's a lot of variation in there, and they haven't really been bred out um, to make one particular cookie cutter type pig very much at all. So there's they have a lot of um, they have a lot of a lot of variability and a lot of adaptability because of that. Interesting. Yeah, I got to say, I I don't know much about that that breed of hog. It's just it's just not something that's come up on my radar. When I, when somebody says pot belly, I automatically think of you know somebody's somebody's pet that they're walking on a leash and has a little diamond studded collar and all that type of stuff. That, that's what sticks in my head. <laughs> so so yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, pot bellies. Well, when they were first imported from Vietnam and then they made their way eventually to Canada and then to the U S they were, they were an exotic. So they were really sought out by zoos for the most part and petting zoos really throughout the eighties and nineties. And then they were kind of marketed as a pet pig for a while because they were small advertised as a mini pig, even though they can still get 200 or 250 pounds when they're grown. But now the pet crowd has taken on the term uh, American miniature pig. Hmm. And they don't want to be associated with the pot belly term because traditionally pot belly is a Asian meat hog. So it's just kind of funny how they're doing that. Yeah, so that's, that's so you said something there. So you're saying your hogs when they're when they're a full size, mature size, they're still about two hundred and two twenty five on the hoof? When I'm talking mature, I'm talking mature breeders. So, and there's variation, a lot of variation in the line. But generally, when I go and I, I look at a lot of other people's pot belly herds, and when I see their breeders, they're generally somewhere between about 175 and 250 on the high side. Um, I mean, my smallest sow right now, she's about maybe 18 months old, and she's probably 120 pounds. And she'll probably get another 75 pounds after that. Hmm, okay. So, yeah, she'll probably max out around 200. And that's, that's not fat weight. I don't let my pigs get very fat. I know a lot of the pet pot bellies tend to get quite obese because they just kind of sit around and snack all day. But they are traditionally a pasture-type uh, pig, honestly. When you see how they're raised traditionally in Vietnam, 99% is just forest fodder and fending for themselves and they usually just get a little rice a little grain now and then and that keeps them tame and keeps them nearby hmm. really interesting so so why did you land on this breed i mean obviously i'm sure the property <laughs> well, may have something to do reasons. yeah first off i was looking at pigs i wanting to get some pigs i have finally decided and kind of proved to myself that i'm pretty sure i could raise pigs cheap that was one of the important things to me because for a long time, I, was, I mean, maybe two cents from, so I didn't have much money. I can't, you know, raise expensive pigs if that's going to be costly to feed them out. So I proved to myself, kind of convinced myself I could do it cheap. And I just started looking around at what pigs were available. And the first one I actually got was a guinea hog. I stumbled upon somebody who had a couple guinea hogs and they, they basically, we just had to get rid of them, didn't want them anymore, and we're getting back into goats. So I got those for quite cheap, and, man, that boar was, they told me he was a big-boned boar. When I showed up, I said, that big bone, that's a fat boar. But he was probably 400 pounds for a six-year-old guinea hog. Oh, my goodness. And, well, we, we raised him for a little bit, just tried to learn about pigs a little bit. I got him a little bit healthier, and then we ended up butchering him, but I decided... I didn't really want to deal with pigs that were quite that size again and just looking around more. 
I just happened to see somebody had pot bellies for quite cheap. It was 50 to 75 bucks or so, I think it was. And I went over to get one pot belly from them. I showed up and they said, here's the deal. You can have it for free if you take all the other ones with it. (laughs) (laughs) So I came home with a utility trailer full of five pot bellies. And we butchered most of those out after a month. And I kept just one of those one sow eventually I found another boar um, and we started doing a little bit of breeding in them but one of the other important reasons why I went with that breed was I have just one acre and I am in an agriculturally zoned area in my township I mean very rural farm town there's 2,000 people in my town and most of them are farmers hmm. but township rules say that if I have less than five acres I'm not allowed large livestock and large livestock were defined as hogs, cattle, and horses. Hmm. So I got to talking with some people at the township and we have decided on a technicality that pot belly pigs are not large livestock because they're small. So that's the other reason why I'm raising pot belly. Interesting. So they're, they're small, so I can get around that. Um, they were cheap to get a hold of, and I, they're fairly common as far as a heritage breed. They're probably the most common heritage breed that I found just looking around. Cheap, too. I mean, consider like the Cooney Coonies. When I'm looking at those, um, I mean, their prices have come down a little bit, but they're still usually 500 bucks or more for a for a fairly small Cooney Coonie. And, that's a lot of money if you wanted to get two or three to start a small breeding operation. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the guinea hogs and, you know, all these other small breeds too, it's the same thing, except for the pot bellies. They're all quite expensive. And it's really just because looking into it all, the pot bellies were the first small breed hog that really kind of came around in, a, in quite a while. And they're just not new anymore. They're not a fad, but there's still so much of a fad for, for the Cooney Coonies and the guinea hogs are still fairly a bit of a fad animal. And then you look at the Idaho pasture pigs, even though some of those can get quite large, they're, that's a whole interesting fad in itself, and that just keeps the prices high for now. Mm. So the pot bellies, they're cheap. They're usually easy to find. They're small, and they're incredibly hardy and do very well on these different alternative diets. We do a lot of alternative feeds and I grow a lot of our own feeds too and they do quite well on it all they also do well on a a little lower protein feed than your normal commercial hogs do interesting that's great so so let me ask you and then we'll we'll get in and talk to bit about your feed and your your rotation and all the things you've got going on there on the land but I do want to ask you uh you you are this this is a a revenue producing part of your farm and this is not a hobby animal that you're just you just like to have 17 hogs running around you, you are producing an income from this correct i produce a small income and i produce quite a bit of meat for our family i mean honestly between the pigs and then our chickens and rabbits and my produce garden that's well over half of the food that my family goes through in a year mm. And on top of that, I do sell a few hogs. Not not a lot, although now, so I started with one sow, and then I got a second, and now I have a third sow, and they're all pregnant now. So come about end of uh, January, I'm going to have to really start figuring out how to sell more pigs. And I do have a small clientele list of people that, that regularly buy pigs one or two a year from me. And then I have, I've come across a lot of people who were interested when I described the type of pig and the type and quality of meat. Um, and an interesting thing about it, by the way, is it seems to me like to a point it's easier to sell people on a smaller pig carcass than on a, on a large one because it's a lot smaller of a purchase at once. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and let me let me ask you this: Would would give me your give me your um, 
your sales pitch, if you would. If if I was a potential customer, it's like, well, I've never I've never considered a pot belly as uh, as a food source or, or a, a breed that that you would butcher and eat. Um, explain you know, the the meat, the uh, the amount that you're going to get, the kind of all the details of oh, the yeah. confirmation of it, that type of stuff. Well, first off, I don't usually say pot belly because that can just evoke the wrong ideas in people. And golly, there is a there is a pet crowd that the the pet pig people they are quite vicious. And I've actually had twice where people in the pot bellied pig pet groups have called the sheriff on me and about animal abuse. And I had to talk with the sheriff and feel all that crud out, but. So I, I usually start off with just telling people, it usually comes up in conversation, something about pigs or livestock in general. And I'll mention that I raise meat pigs and what we raise is a small breed heritage Asian pig or just a small breed Asian pig. And that they're a specialty pig with just a deeper flavor, a much richer flavor and a richer textured meat and with much more deep marbling throughout the meat than your standard light colored market hogs of today. So the meat that we raise, it's a, it's a more pronounced flavor. It cooks down better. You don't get dry pork chops. And there's usually my, my bigger selling point there, pork chops that aren't dry when they're cooked. Mm. Yeah. Good. Very good. Very good. What about, what's the typical yield? So if somebody's going to get a whole hog from you, what, what, how do yep. you talk about yield and those type so of things? There's a whole other side of things in itself. Uh, I know most people with the smaller breed pigs usually let them go to like 18 months or even 24 months because they're trying to push something closer to a standard market hog size carcass. And I can't really do that just because it gets so inefficient on feed to, when you let them get that old. And it's just it, the price that I would have to charge to, to make a very small profit would be too ridiculous. So I butcher at, instead of market size or butcher size, I do butcher age, which is about seven months, fairly standard for hogs, because they're at that age, they're about at their peak of between efficiency in growing and putting on a little fat. Past there, I mean, their efficiency goes down and they get fat easier. So I'll butcher it about seven months and I usually have a 50 to 55 pound animal on the hoof and I'll get about half of that in pork when I butcher them out. So I'll usually end up with around 25 pounds of pork. Okay. So, so how does that 25 pounds, obviously that, that definitely makes that cost effective. Uh, and you talked about a pork chop. So how big a pork chop are we talking here? Well, I don't usually actually slice them into your classic chops. Mm -hmm. um, when I do, I do them more like a, a double medallion mm -hmm. cut, like uh, what I would expect to see in, in a lamb chop, where you keep the whole um, that whole backbone loin, instead of splitting it down the middle, you keep it in one piece and put a little bit of rib on it, and then you slice the whole thing off in one, so you get kind of uh, double medallions out yeah. of it. Okay. But generally, actually, I and and when I I do custom processing on these animals hmm. as well when I sell them, and my standard custom processing is just what I call the family cuts package, which is I cut everything into pot roast pieces. Hmm. And from there, if they want it cut down more, some of them I can. I don't have a really good bone saw, so I'm not really sawing the chops down much. I have. Um, it's just with that smaller loin size, it just kind of gets shredded up too easily in my saw. So I generally don't do that. Usually, um, oh, I can't think of it offhand, how many cuts I get, more primal type cuts. I just did a video on that on YouTube. Maybe I should watch it again. <laughs> but everything comes out to between a two and a four pound cut when I'm finished. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you do anything with the belly or is that still part of your roast? The belly is generally kept in in just one piece unless I rip it a little bit when I'm skinning the animal, which happens sometimes. Then I'll, I'll cut it into two separate halves, and I'll just I roll it up, and I package it, and I label it as belly roll. 
Interesting. <laughs> and I usually, I recommend that just be um, marinated and slow cooked. And I'll usually tell people that if you put a little liquid smoke in there, it makes basically what I call a bacon roast. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's that's a very unique take on on processing. And, and my goodness, you, you talk about being busy and you're also doing your own custom processing. <laughs> You've got quite a few things going on. Yeah, it, it's unique. And it took me and I'm working with I've worked with a few other people on what we think the more appropriate way to process these pot bellies are, because they are so much smaller. Some of the cuts, you know, they're not going to work. And so we've had to do some different styles of processing. And what it comes back to is we went and looked at a lot of the traditional ways that these small hogs are utilized throughout Asia. And for the most part, it's just they're used traditionally as roast pieces. And then maybe the edges, the nice meaty thick edges of those roasts are trimmed off and more like a stir fry kind of meat. Mm. But just it it lends itself well the pig lends itself well to a nice dinner sized roast not so much to smaller cuts okay is there is there much grind do you do you do any grinding with it i have um generally until recently i'm butchering all these pigs hot carcass and so i don't usually grind it much at that point i've found that when i'm grinding a hot hunk of meat fresh off the animal it tends to get kind of wet and mushy yeah. doesn't grind well yeah but now i've got a actually just a large refrigerator that i can put two pigs in at once after i skin them and i can chill those in there for a few days and then if i want to i can grind it um, generally i don't unless my wife asks me to make some sausage yeah yeah and and so obviously the, these Asian pigs are uh, considered lard pigs, so I assume you get a, a decent amount of, of lard, uh, scale-wise, of course, that you can render and use for, for other Oh, meats. yeah. yeah. Um, I, I do try to watch the amount of fat on my pigs because I don't want them ridiculously fat. Um, I, I don't want to, to put so much feed into them that they start getting wasteful, and I have seen that if I want to get a pig very fat, it tends to take more feed to me than it's worth. So generally I like to see around a half inch of fat when I'm butchering these animals at seven months, which, I mean, that puts the, that would be like on a, on a full size regular hog, that would be something like around four or four and a half inches worth if you put it to scale. So they are on the fatty side when, when I'm looking at it that way, um, I'll get, Something like about a gallon of lard off of one fifty-pound pot belly. Wow! Okay. Rendered down lard. <laughs> Goodness, that's pretty good. And that is, I mean, I'm I usually um, I usually scrap out the carcass pretty well. I want to leave a nice little fat cap on it, but not too much. It's easily overpowered if you have too much fat on those things. Mm. And then I will the hide. I'll scrape the fat off the hide, and all of that just it's chopped up and thrown in the crock pot overnight and I'll have about a gallon of lard plus a rhinus off of one fifty ish pound pot belly. Wow. That's, that's impressive. So, um, that's I, actually one of the sales points that I have just some of the people who have been so interested were very interested in the lard. Um, the first person I sold a pig to is an acquaintance of my wife. She's a nutritional researcher and she actually came to me because she heard that I was getting into pigs and wanted to know how I was raising them and feeding them. When I described what I was wanting to do, she told me she'd buy one or two minimum every year because um, the fat, that lady, she knows her stuff. Uh, she was telling me all these unique properties that I should expect in the lard and how amazing that was going to be. And so she orders her pigs extra fat. <laughs> That's great. Well, that's great. I mean, it sounds like you've got a great little niche market there of, of people that that know what to expect or, or, or as you said, is a good entry level for um, for a smaller mm -hmm. investment to to test, you know, to stick their toe in the water when it comes to buying uh, pork like that. But that's that's really interesting. I, I'm I would say I was skeptical at first, but I, I like what you're saying. And and obviously you you, you know, it's, you know, where, what it lane is to stay interesting. In. Yeah. Um, 
and it's very different for sure. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your feet because I think this is something that's that is is also very impressive and and I, I like the way you approach this because it comes back to the economy of what you're doing, the economy of of maintaining mm-hmm. and, and establishing as much efficiency on your one acre, but also just the overall inputs, uh, just, just not throwing a lot of money into something. So, uh, explain to our listeners a bit, uh, your, your feed regimen and, and how you're handling that. Yeah, sure. I have two parts to our feed regimen. Um, the first part is what I grow and what we produce here on our own property. I mean, everything from the, the produce that I can't sell at the farmer's market. So I bring it home and after two or three days, it doesn't look pretty anymore. So, and I can only handle so many tomatoes myself. <laughs> so the pigs get quite a lot of that. And then standard kitchen scraps and kitchen waste, of course. And we, we do have a few areas of uh, perennial pasture kind that wouldn't even call it a pasture. I let the wild grass grow along the sides a bit. And I make sure to always bring an armful of grass to the pigs at least every few days. And then I, I grow a few plots of corn every year. I play around with some different corns. I only grow flint corn because it's a higher protein corn. And I'm trying to always to kind of get away from some of the soy a little bit, just from some of the, some of the possible health concerns that it has along with the heavy use of soy. So we grow some flint corns and I grow a lot of um, tree fodder. We have about 1,200 poplar trees that I left along in the back when we cleared out the main forest. I pollarded them, which is just trimming small trees down to approximately shoulder-ish height, so they kind of grow real shrubby. And I'll just go and, or my girls have been, that's been their summer job, just picking a bucket full of green leaves every day to give to the pigs. And that is actually the only mineral that I really give the pigs at least during the summer months i don't buy any hog mineral because i tried some and i didn't see any functional benefits from it during the during the months where they have that green feed available and those tree leaves it's got a very high ash content very high mineral content when you look into it it actually quite impressed me and so that's all the minerals they need during that time of the year um i let's see you we do buy feed. I buy whole corn and whole oats from a farmer up the road. And that's generally about 50% of their total diet is going to be these whole grains. And then I ferment them. And I will mix the ratios of the yellow corn and oats, depending on what I think they need at the time. The oats being more like a 12% protein and the corn is closer to an eight. So I, I add, usually I'll add more protein, um, a little bit more protein kind of towards the fall here. It seemed to help them out the past couple of years. And then I'll back off on the oats if I think they need more, just more calories, more energy in their diet, and it'll be more of a corn heavy. But I'm fermenting it out until I get a pH of approximately 4.3, which I have found through my own work and the research. That's about the, the goalpost of now I have um, functionally processed the grains so that they're incredibly digestible, just as good as if you had them ground into a mash, and they have a much higher protein, con- when, protein content when I do ferment them, um, anywhere from a 20 to a 40% gain is what I've seen through research and just through kind of my estimates of how they're doing on this fermented grain based on regular hog feed. I think I generally get around a 30 to 35% increase in protein. Hmm. And the protein that I'm attempting to target through all of this, which is, it's a little tricky because I'm trying to balance a lot of things out that are hard without actually measuring the protein content constantly. But I'm trying to target more of around a 14% overall protein in their diet. And I've even gone down a little bit lower than that before. And it's done fairly well for them. This breed, because they're not, they're not a bodybuilder type hog, they don't need quite so much protein in their diet. They do better, actually, with, with a higher dose of fiber than a lot of the other pigs. Um, 
they were just talking about something similar to that. What's that podcast? The Just Swining It podcast, I think it is, hmm. where they had a man talking about um, a geneticist talking about the genetical differences in some of the heritage breed pigs versus the uh, commercial market hogs that that dictate uh, their gut flora, basically, mm-hmm. and how different feeds can be more appropriate to the different breeds based on how their gut tends to function. And what I've found and many others have found is that the pot bellies and a lot of the other heritage breeds, they do, they handle a higher fiber diet better, more than your standard, say, 5 to 10% fiber in the diet. They handle more fiber. And they actually seem to do better if I give them a higher fiber diet than your standard market hog diet, too. Interesting. Well, it sounds like you've definitely done quite a bit of homework there and and research. And 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 that's uh, that's really good data to look into. So so in that, would you say have you have you thought about if you were going out and just buying commercial feed for your herd and maintaining them on that versus Mm -hmm. what you're doing with uh, uh, with raising some of your own, yeah. of course, the fermenting. Have you have you looked and, and estimated a cost savings uh, with that? Do you have a, any kind of gauge? Oh, yeah. Um, and I did. I had to try, at least try, for at one time raising up some of my pigs on a standard commercial hog feed. So I went down into Cedar Springs and I bought myself a few bags of hog feed, which, to put it in perspective, you know, usually you're, somewhere between 600 and 800 pounds of feed for a regular hog mm-hmm. pot bellies. It's about three bags of feed, <laughs> maybe a little more if you wanted to go longer, but usually it's around 150 pounds of, of pig feed to feed out a pot belly. That's hilarious. So, but so it was, it was a cheap enough experiment to run. Um, I got a slight bit more growth when I did that. Of course it was only in the summer too, not, not the winter months, but they also got fatter. Um, and I didn't really like that. And I actually read some reports on that too. There was a report crudely translated from Russian, a little hard to read, but basically saying that, uh, on the standard commercial feeds, pot bellies tended to get a little bit fatter too quickly once they hit about five months old. And I saw that too. But as far as cost goes, um, it cost me about bucks a pound in feed only to raise out a pot belly or most any pig it's around that same level of feed to yield it costs about two bucks a pound Mm -hmm. and with the feed that i'm buying i buy the 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 grain that i buy is half price of a hog mash in town and by fermenting it i basically i really don't need to add any additional protein sometimes i add much difference so i end up i've ended up between about 40 cents and 60 cents a pound when it when i when i put all the numbers down wow. so that's about one quarter of the cost yeah yeah that's great that's great what a I, and that was my main reason for really sticking with it originally i mean not really thinking about trying to sell any but but i'm bringing meat to the table for way cheaper than I can buy it at the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's the main thing. And you said something there. I, I think I want to point out again, because make sure people heard that, that with what you're doing on an acre, that you said probably 50 to 60% of your family intake is coming off that land. And that's, that's incredible. Oh yeah. Last year I calculated everything up meticulously and we were right at about 50% of our total uh, food intake and caloric intake and protein all combined we're right at about 50 yeah. percent and this year i think i did a little more i just didn't monitor it as closely interesting so family of seven now obviously is that going to be more of a challenge as those kids get a little older you think you're going to max out somewhere well i'm sure at some point i will um i'll also say that i am looking for property um we've been saving our pension our pennies since we got married and I've got a little cash. So the only issue is nobody's selling. Yeah. I would love to buy 10 acres somewhere quite close by close enough that, that I could just run down at any time or maybe even walk over just a couple of miles away 
so that I'd be close enough that I can actually manage the property well and put some animals there. And if it's 10 acres, or actually if it's 10.1 acres, according to township regulations, they basically don't have any say over anything anymore that I do agriculturally. Hmm. So that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, yeah, very good. Very good. So um, that was going to be my next question was future plans going forward. So looking for land that's uh, that's that size. So it gives you the freedom to do some additional things. But do you have any other plans going forward as far as expansion or or additional testing and research? Well, I keep dabbling around in different areas of testing different feeds and unique feed products and some different mixes and blends and I'm kind of always going to do that because that's just my nature to try things. Um, sometimes when I explain some of these tests or trials I want to do to some of the other pig farmers, they seem to think that I've been hitting the head with a monkey wrench or something. But it's, I like to try out these different things. And, and with research behind them, some of these things sound like they might be interesting, like uh, Jerusalem artichoke. This is one of the feed crops that I played around with last year. We fed a few hundred pounds of those to our pigs last year. This year, I'm going to do about the same, a few hundred pounds, just kind of as a as a going into winter supplemental feed for our pigs. And next year, I, I'm taking a lot of the excess this fall, and I'm planting the entire boundaries of my property with these Jerusalem artichokes hmm. because they did pretty well last year. And they, they grow very productive. It's a lot of starch. Basically, it's about like a potato, but more easily digestible to pigs. And I'm going to plant one of my pig paddocks with a large portion of these Jerusalem artichokes when the pigs aren't in it here in the fall when I move them into their next rotational paddock. And that's going to be my trial, really, is to, to go very heavy on that as a feed source and see how they do. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I love that stuff, and I, I think that's that's what really makes pastured pigs that much more exciting. Is is there's so much opportunity to experiment with some things, and, and obviously, just just adapt to what you're given. You know, whether it's a hundred acres or one acre, it's you know sixty degree slope or, or flat, then then you're just going to test it and, and see what works for you in that situation. So that, I think that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I and, would love sixty acres, but it just seems like that's going to be a long time away before I could ever do something like that. Sure. So, yeah. but for the meantime, I'm making it work where I am and making it productive and efficient. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be one of those more hobby farm scenarios that just begins to be a bit of a money pit because, well, I don't have the funds to support that anyway. So everything I do, I'm trying to, to keep it sensible and reasonable, even if it sounds odd at first. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Well, that's that's a good philosophy to go by. I think, I think when you're looking at the economy, the economics of it, and, and being frugal, it makes things work a lot better. And I know there's times where I've lost sight of of keeping track of costs, and at the end, look and say, well, this. This, I feel like I was really busy this year, but how come how come my uh, checking account looks smaller than it should be? And then realize, well, you'd lost sight of these type of things and just just allowed it to get out of control. And I and I think that's uh, I think that's that's a great approach to it, especially when you're looking at uh, uh, scaling up and and eventually buying larger land and doing that type of stuff. Not just work yourself to death, but uh, but work mm -hmm. smarter into a goal. So uh, so yeah, oh, we have we have some really fun plans for. If and when we get that 10 acres, my wife and I, we definitely expanding a bit with the pigs. And, oh, I've gone, I've delved quite deeply into designing these different types of civil pasture systems on paper and various different setups of rotational grazing paddocks with annual crops and perennial tree crops, nut crops, fruit crops. I've got all kinds of things that I, that I would love to do someday. And I'm doing some of it here now. Um, I have one mature apple tree that we got about 350, maybe 400 pounds of apples on this year. Wow. And that I figured the calorie content of those out, it comes out to, it takes about 200 pounds of apples to 
equal about 50 pounds worth of corn mm. when I figured by calories. Mm. So there's not a whole lot of feed that comes off of one apple tree, but it's a good start. And I, we planted seven apple trees this spring, seven younger ones. And one of the nice things I have is we're in apple country. I mean, there's literally Apple Avenue, Peach Road, right down the street. We have orchards and small old farm orchards everywhere. Most properties have a small old neglected orchard on them somewhere around here. Mm -hmm. And I have access to all the apples I want basically from mid-August to even now we still have apples on some of the late crop trees. And so I've been going around with my minivan and my wagon just picking up apples from the neighbor's yards and bringing them over for the pigs. Yep. And I would love to have more of that kind of setup for my own pigs. Um, right now, actually, I went to, I don't know if you're familiar with Nick Ferguson. Yeah. He's fairly big in the kind of alternative feeds world. Yeah. I went to a class that he was holding up in Michigan this year, and I bought a bunch of trees from him. I have a few nut trees, and I have actually have 40 mulberry trees and I'm planting those all around the outside edge of my pig paddock area. Mm. And a little thing that, that he mentioned during the class we were talking about was as they start to grow, they get up about 10 to 15 feet tall. He said, put a heavy stake in the ground and a rope and goes on an angle up over into the pig pen. So all of that fruit's always going to drop in the pig pen. <laughs> Well, that's going to give me a nice source of sugary starch in June, which is I can't have any other crops locally that are really a starch crop that early, but that's going to be my starch crop in in June. And about a month to a month and a half, we'll be able to have those dropping just for the pigs out of the trees. And about by the time that's finished, we're going to be getting, I'll have a little break where there's, not any good crops coming, but the next thing is uh, in August we have early apples that are that are falling off the trees, hmm. and then I'll have apples throughout August and September. I usually am I grow some early season corns and then some late season corn, so I'm picking corn in September, early September or end of August, and then I'm picking another crop about a month later. So the idea ultimately is going to be to incorporate a lot more trees into this into this program so that we'll have a good source of starchy feed and eventually some protein feed from some of the higher protein nuts that are just naturally falling down for the pigs so that I'll be able to at least halfway through finish out a pig on more or less wild feed yeah that's the end goal yeah that'd be great that'd be great Man, that's that. That's awesome. I, I love I love your approach to this, and I love the fact that you're tracking all this data and and um, and taking the time to to flesh out all the details. Uh, that way, you can kind of see how things are are developing as you go along. Well, well, Jordy, I wanna I wanna be sensitive to your time, but because I, I know you're you, you even had to leave the house for this interview, and I appreciate that. But um, let me ask you something. I have to ask you what I ask everybody. So. In, in your experience so far, what is your favorite part about raising pigs on pasture? You know, I wouldn't even say it's just exclusive to pigs on pasture, but my favorite part about all of this whole thing is what I've called the law of multiplication. And that is just that I can take one thing and turn it into several things. Mm -hmm. And I can take a few things and turn it into many things. I can, with the proper attitude and mindset, I can go into a scenario, even a less than perfect scenario, and I can work to cause it to flourish and be productive and to be a healthy, life-giving environment. And that's by far what drives me on in all this. Mm, awesome. That's excellent. Well said. Well, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to talk about, there's two things. You, you have a, a good web presence. You have your website and you have your YouTube channel where you're, you're obviously discussing a lot of the details and sharing with people not only what you've got going on there with the pigs, but the overall homesteading approach and how you're able to do what you're doing on one acre. And, and I think uh, even though we're kind of pig-centric here, I, I think that would be really helpful for our our listeners to to hear about so uh, give a shout out give a plug for your your website and your YouTube channel and maybe just a quick uh, description of what's going on there 
Well, sure. My website, Northern Homesteading, which is at northernhomesteading.com. That is, it's a mostly, it's an informational blog style website. I'm writing informational articles, generally a few every week on there in an assortment of homesteading topics, focusing on sustainability and productivity and what you're doing. I do a lot of, of work around alternative feeds too. That's kind of my big thing. And then my YouTube channel, that's more, um, more of an educational side or a different side of the educational side of it, I guess. And that's homestead know-how. That's where I, I had started by doing a bunch of courses here. I teach some homesteading courses locally in town and I started putting some of those together in a more of a video type format and cutting them up into smaller bits. And I've got a lot of that material out on YouTube. Some of the more detailed stuff is restricted to a membership, which is two ninety nine, I think, for a month membership, and you get the more in depth videos there. But yeah, the website and the YouTube channel, northernhomesteading.com and Homestead Know How on YouTube is full of great information and I'm doing my very best to keep regular information coming out. Excellent. Excellent. Well, good. I mean, I appreciate all your hard work and it's definitely noted in, in what you have online and, and clearly in this discussion, see that you've, uh, you've got attention to detail when it comes to tracking stuff. And I, and I really, I really like that. I respect that a lot. Well, I, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I'm going to let you go so you can get home to your lovely family and, and, uh, and be able to complete your evening. And, uh, man, I just, I just enjoyed the conversation. It was good talking with you. Alrighty. Well, this was fun. Well, that was a good conversation with Jordy. Appreciate him coming on and sharing his story with the uh, pot-bellied pigs. I, that's, that's not an angle I would have expected, but it uh, seems like he's got something good going on there. Well, this is number three. Again, I appreciate everybody listening, and we will get a fourth one ready and be queued up for next week. And then our queue is empty. So if you know anybody that needs to be on the podcast or should a uh, topic we need to discuss, just send me an email, Troy at redtoolhouse.com. All right, y'all take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.